Welcome to the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. I'm joined by my colleague, Adam Belmar. John Easton is on assignment on the left coast. We are joined by Kate Ackley. Kate covers lobbying, influence, and political money for CQ Roll Call. She is a must-read for anybody in the lobbying community. I love reading her stuff. She's an expert on K Street and the relationship between Congress and those seeking to influence it. Kate grew up in Denver and graduated from the University of Colorado. Are those the Buffaloes? That's right. Go Buffaloes. Go <laughs> All right. Welcome, Kate Ackley. Theory one, the swamp is still swampy. Lobbying is one of the few professions specifically protected under the Bill of Rights in our nation's constitution. Here's my theory. Getting rid of lobbyists is not only a fool's errand, it's unconstitutional. Candidate Donald Trump, like his predecessor, President Obama, promised to drain the swamp. But when it comes to the lobbying industry, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Kate, you are an expert on K Street. We are a lobbying firm here at EFB, although we do a lot of other things, including our podcast. Uh, looking at the latest financial disclosures over the first year of the Trump administration, what's your analysis of how things have changed in the lobbying community, if they've changed at all, under President Trump? Well, one thing, there was certainly a bump in the lobbying revenue, as I'm sure you saw last year versus 2016, an election year when Congress was very much gridlocked. You know, you had the last uh, winding down of the Obama administration, so it was uh, it, 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 not a big year in 2016. 2017, the first year of the, the Donald Trump presidency, uh, lobbying was definitely up. Uh, there was a lot going on, especially in the fourth quarter, the last three months of 2017. That was the tax bill. Right. I mean, and that was just, uh, you know, spurred on a whole bunch of lobbying, mostly in support of it. Uh, but there were other, you know, there were home builders and realtors and certain groups that had a lot of problems with the initial versions of of the uh, of the tax overhaul, and so they, you know, certainly got in there and and, and worked hard to change things that they didn't like. Um, That's me pointing at the mic to make sure people can continue to hear you. Well. Okay, um, but I think overall, what we found was that um, you know, if you look at you, you always expect the first year of a presidency, the first year of a new administration, probably to be the most active. Right. You know, those first one hundred days. Um, you know, everybody looks at those as being, you know, just, you know, a bonanza for policy and legislation. Um, the Trump administration sort of got off to a difficult start. Yeah. Um, with the Republican Congress, there were really high expectations that the all-Republican control, you know, they were going to repeal and replace Obamacare, um, the 2010 uh, health law. Uh, that has still not happened, although in the tax overhaul, obviously, there was a, a, a repeal of the individual mandate, so they can kind of say that they, they're working toward it still. Um, but the bump was not as big as the bump in 2009, the first year of the Obama administration. And we have a, a data guru. His name is Sean McMinn, and he's been running the numbers for us. And so we had a, a story right away on Tuesday after the uh, lobbying reports came in. 
that showed that you know that first year of the Obama administration there was a big bounce. Yeah. Um, you know, but you have to think about the times too. There was the uh, you know we we basically had a an economy in a tailspin. We had the you know fiscal crisis happening, uh, beginning of the Great Recession. Uh, they were working on the what became you know what we call Obamacare. Um, they were working on the Dodd Frank financial regulatory overhaul. So there was a big agenda in 2009 that, that had a lot of corporate interests concerned. Yeah. So motivation, fear, and opportunity. We were talking about this before. Um, they had a lot to fear from Obama. I think they sense a lot of opportunity from uh, the Trump administration. Um, when you talk to different lobbyists, that they feel like they've fully recovered from the financial crisis because there was a great contraction in especially in fees. I mean, you used to have these huge fees, and and, and, and I think there's a contraction. And there's also a lot more lobbyists, isn't there? Uh, actually, the number of registered lobbyists was shrinking during the oh. Obama years. I think for people like you all who are in the business and you are you know, going up against competitors to pitch business – it probably doesn't seem that this is a contracting industry, right? right, right. I mean, it There's seems a lot of right people there. out there. Exactly. Um, what we have found, uh, you know, in, in doing looking at data and also working with you know nonpartisan groups that crunch the numbers, like uh, the Center for Responsive Politics, um, it, we found that a lot of the people who have deregistered and are no longer registered lobbyists actually have the same titles. They still work for the same firms. Ah. So, you know, there's uh, sort of a sense that maybe, um, you know, the Obama administration put new restrictions, you know, wouldn't hire lobbyists for um, administration jobs. And, um, you know, also at the same time, around 2000, a little bit before the Obama administration in 2007, was the, the new Honest Leadership and Open Government Act, which re- revised the Lobbying Disclosure Act. So all of that is just to say that uh, the restrictions and the, the regulations got a little bit tougher, and maybe people have decided that they uh, don't meet the criteria and they don't want to just register for no reason. Uh, we think there's a lot going on. I think personally that the uh, uh, doing away with earmarks, those little um, member-directed pots of money, I think that shrunk a, a piece of the of K Street, of the influence industry. But uh, surely there are a lot of people that are out there influencing uh, Congress and the administration and public policy, and they are not seen on the public disclosures. So that <clears throat> you've just outlined uh, – uh, the, the point that it's hard to put a number and therefore size the lobbying industry in Washington if your metric is dollars brought in based on registered lobbying. So is it fair to say that it's, it's hard to make a comparison apples to apples between these two administrations in that way? How do you capture the rest of the activity? Well, we know that there is the the lobbying fees that are disclosed, and so that's what we looked at. And there, you know, if you look at inflation and you sort of adjust, it's about the same. Okay. So 2009 and 2017, about the same. There was a, a more dramatic bump in from 2008 to 2009 than there was from 16 to 17. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There, there's a, there's a lot that's going on that we can't really. Uh, monitor. We know that that the registered lobbying fees are about four billion dollars a year. So we know that there is a, it's about a four billion dollar a year industry 
um, that is disclosed, but as far as what's going on in terms of grassroots organizing, messaging development, all the sort of non-lobbying public policy work that companies are engaged in, uh, it, that's hard to monitor. It's We don't know. Let me, Kay, let me ask you this question. Um, in your conversations with lobbyists, I mean, one of the things that I would love to have happen is if there's a ban on lobbyists giving campaign contributions. Um, I, you know, that would be great for me because then I wouldn't have to give a campaign contribution. Um, the influx of money in, in politics and, and where the money is coming from. Yes, lobbies, lobbyists give some money and they, they give as much money as they can. Um, but really the big money is coming from outside, from billionaires. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and how that's changing the, the lobbying business? Right, absolutely. I did a story a couple of years ago where we looked at the top lobbyists uh, in terms of campaign donations, who'd given the most of their personal money. And most of them, you know, are kind of in the like maybe $150,000, $200,000 range. Now, that's a lot of money. Lot of money. Obviously, money. that's more, you know, than most Americans make over a two year period, which is an election cycle is two years. So you can you give that amount of money. You have you know twenty four months to give that, um, but it's still if you look at these billionaires, you know on the left there's um, Tom Steyer who's been running ads, uh, you know trying to get uh, people, uh, you know wanting to impeach the president. That's been one of his, uh, you know issues that he's been. Which Nancy uh, Pelosi doesn't really want to talk about, right? Right. That's uh, they've been saying that it's too. Just calm know, down, not, Tom. Not not talk about that right now. <laughs> um, but but he's obviously bankrolling not only. Those ads, but they're doing a lot of grassroots organizing in particular states. Virginia, they're doing a lot on immigration, trying to mobilize people on the immigration issue. Uh, it's a, you know, those are you're talking about, you know, lots and lots of money. Not to mention the super PACs that can come in and sort of rev up people on an issue, at least theoretically. Um, I think you know, lobbying campaign donations still matter. It, you know, the fundraisers are, are one of the few opportunities that, um, that lobbyists have to kind of mingle with lawmakers and staff. And, you know, there are the trips and the retreats um, and things like that where you get quality face time uh, that you wouldn't get if you weren't a big donor because you can't take people out to lunch and stuff like you could a decade ago. Um, but it is, it, I think I sort of called them the, the, the mini mega donors. The, the, you know, K Street is sort of uh, even the biggest donors on K Street are dwarfed by the, the real mega donors, the, the right. you know, Adelsons and the... And I think that's really sellers. changing the kind of the nature of political money. I mean, it's nice to give a campaign contribution to a member of Congress, and they know that you support them and that that's, an, that's appreciated. But it doesn't really matter. It's a drop in the bucket compared to the millions and millions of dollars that these big, rich people are giving to politicians. And ultimately, that, ha that does have an influence on, on K Street, don't you think? You know, I think that K Street has been trying to grapple with the, this, the influence of super PACs, and I don't know if you've seen that in your own client work, if a super PAC has come in. Uh, you know, I, I think it still remains to be seen. People still are giving, uh, you know, big amounts of campaign donations. Um, but, you know, I, I think we, um, it, we, we never really can know exactly – what that direct, you know, there's not supposed to be a quid pro quo, right? That's and I don't that's think there is, right? Yeah, right. Um, but I, I do think that in in terms of getting to know offices, getting to know members, um, there there is a you know still level of transactional nature. They expect that lobbyists are going to host and 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 you know host fundraisers and bundle money and all that. 
Um, I don't know that they have the same expectation about super PACs, um, but it's certainly always the threat. Right. So. Well, I think that's the other thing is that some of these super PACs come in and these members have no control over what they're going to say or what they're going to do. And that's very frustrating for politicians. And so the reason I bring these questions up is I do think that ultimately it'll be in the best interests of members of Congress to think about trying to get control over the money again and perhaps do campaign finance reform, which is, you know, Republicans never like to do campaign finance reform, but it's getting kind of ridiculous. Well, you know, uh, right after Trump was elected, um, we sort of looked at uh, what's what's on the horizon for campaign finance. Um, and, you know, you, you ask a majority of Americans in, in polls, and I think it's something like 80, 90 percent consistently say that the current campaign finance system is broken. Right. Um, not not that this will come as any shock to anybody, but guess what? You know, Americans are polarized and divided about the solution to that problem. So if you're if you're liberal, um, you probably think that we need to have um, you know something where it's it's basically like um, you know government you know steps in and and has there are more regulations or you have or, or you have uh, taxpayer funded campaigns exactly that's right. right you have or you at least give tax credits for campaign donations and and things like that to incentivize uh, small dollar donors and whatnot. If you're on the other side, if you're on the side of you know uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, then you want to see, uh, you know, total deregulation on on the grounds of free speech. So you have really opposite ideas. Um, we we looked at it in the context of who is around President Trump. His, um, his Don, Don McGahn. Yeah, his um, the White House Counsel uh, Don McGahn, as you mentioned, is uh, a former commissioner of the Federal Election Commission, which you know sets those regulations. And, uh, you know, he's a proponent of deregulation on the grounds of free speech. We sort of expected maybe this year, maybe in, you know, last year even, that there would be more um, coming out on that. But so far, it, it hasn't been, they haven't taken it up, you know, it, it, because I think it is controversial. Let, let me jump back in here and channel my <clears throat> inner journalist. I like to call myself a recovering journalist, but... I think that there is a really important role that the fourth estate plays that you play as an individual um, with great reporting skills and and a voice. My father, Warren Belmar, likes to say the problem is not what the majority of of members of Congress rail against in special interests, but vested interests. And so policing um, that, that... that effectiveness of vested interests in trying to shape policy or work to undermine a potential change that would impact their vested interests seems to be, to me, uh, a great part of the charge that you and others in, in, in that realm have to have beyond just taking a look at the numbers and saying, okay, what does that say? What more can we know about the whole story here to shed light on who's voting which way and, and what interests are impacting the debate and why they're motivated to do so, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right that um, reporting, uh, especially uh, as it um, relates to grassroots lobbying mm. and things that are just not disclosed and who's behind something, um, you know, getting those kinds of scoops is is all the more important. And it's, a, it's harder, um, 
you know, then to just look at, you know, oh, this firm's revenue is up or this company spent more or less, um, you know, that's obviously publicly disclosed and you can interpret that, um, you know, it, it, in a pretty obvious way. But it is, it's the, it's the stuff, and some of it I think you all are involved in, you know, where you're doing this messaging and social media mobilization um, to understand who is driving that um, is definitely an important job for reporters. Theory two, one man's fake news is another man's truth revealed from God. There is no question that the media world is changing. Financial pressure, digitized media, and the proliferation, it's hard to say that, proliferation of alternative news outlets means that the mainstream media has to change to survive. My theory this will get worse before it gets better. The media is antagonistic to this president, the mainstream media, and they will never give him the benefit of the doubt. Kate, you have a bird's eye view of the media world. What is going on with your industry? Is it uh, how is it changing? Um, what is the you know the the idea of not having deadlines anymore? Uh, how's oh, that? Yeah, constant. I was constant, say, constant. Do you not have them. Or Const, you constant deadlines. Can't stop them. Tell us about it's the opposite of not having deadlines. Tell us about the world and the, the clickbait right. world. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, so we're we're at CQ and Roll Call. We're sort of, you know, maybe a little bit mainstream media, but more sort of um, inside the Beltway. You know, so it's 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 some kind of uh, something in between there. Um, but I think certainly we feel very strongly that uh, that facts matter, the truth matters. Um, it matters no matter who is in the White House. Um, we do a little bit of coverage of the White House. We have a White House reporter, John Bennett, who is uh, you know who is at the White House frequently. He's also on Capitol Hill, trying to get a sense for the relationship between Congress. And, he calls me and, all the time. I like, the I like John. He's a good okay. guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know, but I think we're not um, – I, I don't – I mean, I personally have never been attacked as sort of uh, spewing fake news, and I don't think our organization um, – No, I don't think – I think Roll Call is a much been. different position than, say, um, MSNBC or Fox on the right, where it's become so polarized. I mean, if, you know, if Roll Call is kind of – and CQ, it is kind of the – the paper of record for Capitol Hill. Yeah, and we take our sort of nonpartisan, you know, uh, just we're trying to give you the, the news and, and analysis and insight. Um, but I, I think, you know, we have, you know, the, the sort of media industry um, the, has, has been suffering, um, you know, for a long time. And I think we've, we saw that first in the state capitals and the, the big town, you know, the big city um, and regional newspapers cutting back, that's been a trend that has continued. Right. Um, so I think we're missing out on a lot of stories um, in the state capitals, local news, uh, really that matters to people's lives. You know, and, I, and I think that one thing that we, uh, you know, our readership, especially at Roll Call, is kind of anybody that clicks on it. So that can, that can be anyone. But we're not necessarily, you know, trying to explain to people how – day-to-day policy and politics will affect them, um, though I think we can, you know, try to do that, and we certainly, on the CQ side, try to drill down into the, the specifics of legislation and, and try to make sense of it for, for people, but uh, that's something that's really, I think, has hurt our communities, probably. Yeah, let me, let me t- I was on the Hill um, talking to some press secretaries, I was 
talking about a, a, a subject matter, and I, I asked the question: you know, Who is your local stringer? Who are, who are the folks who cover the, your delegation uh, for back homes newspaper? And they said, you know, we don't have any back home newspapers anymore. Uh, everyone gets their information from Fox. And I thought, well, that's that's fascinating. And I think that this is one of the things that that's happened to journalism is that people are not doing, you know, the basics of reporting back home. And so that really leads to an information gap with voters. If you're if you're getting, and this is no no criticism of Fox, but if you're getting all of your information from a thirty second news bite. Uh, about the latest news, you're not really getting in-depth understanding of any issues. And I think that's reflected on kind of uh, what people are – the information they're they're getting and how they're activated by that lack of information. Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's you, – you can't expect a national TV – um, you know, network to cover your member of Congress or the issues that, you know, matter in your own community, in your own life, the way that a, a local uh, a local station or a local paper would. And so, you know, I think that's, um, I, I think that's been something that has a, a real impact and a negative impact on, on our local, you know, our cities and our communities that people just are not paying attention and are, don't have outlets anymore that are, are giving them, you know, the information that they need. I, I agree with, with what you've said, Kate, but I, I think that, that Fury touched on something in the, in the question, the theory that, uh, that I see as being even more important than the discussion we're having right now. And that is that this world of digital media has transcended the word and what people take to mean journalism and journalists. So let me be very clear about this. If you're a lobbyist and you don't register, are you still a lobbyist in many cases? Yeah, you are. Um, but for journalism, in the way that people get information, you have to take a look at a much broader uh, base of, uh, of broadcasters. Just take a look this week. CNN, which made a $25 million invested in a YouTube uh, sensation guy named Casey Neistat just pulled the plug on a $25 million investment um, this week in a channel called Beam. We won't get into the details there, but juxtapose that with a fellow by the name of Philip DeFranco. Phil DeFranco is a YouTuber who is, for all intents and purposes, putting out a daily newscast. Now, it's not the newscast like ABC World News Tonight or CBS Evening News. But it is giving people information that they want. They're detailing the source of the information uh, that they're sharing and all the background of it. But it's who you're getting your news from and how they're giving it to you. So newspapers and television news are just not how young people are getting their news. They're getting it from completely unconventional sources. They're getting a rundown and a discussion and, quite frankly, language that is more colorful than you could say on television, and people like that. And I think that we just don't begin to understand right now how this is evolving. Serious people like us are reading CQ Roll Call on a daily basis, but the vast majority of this nation and the young people there don't want to read it. They want to have it given to them in some context with a little bit of attitude, well, but they also demand sources. I don't, th- I, don't, I don't agree with you to say that I'm a serious person. I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kate, yeah, you know, it's, uh, this is kind of what I was getting at, the fact that uh, there's so many proliferations 
so there's such a proliferation of different news outlets. I think, for example, of Breitbart and how influential Breitbart has been. And, you know, I, I, I kind of call Breitbart fake journalism because I, I talk about fake news. I, I say they fake news because they accuse me of being an anti-never-Trumper. Are you just defending yourself, John? I'm defending myself, okay. and I, I'm still angry about that because it was completely fake news. Um, uh, but there is just kind of these proliferations on the right and the left and, and it's kind of making it hard for people like Roll Call uh, CQ to get noticed because everyone notices the the fake news. Well, and well, I, I have to say that as somebody who, um, you know, is obviously a practicing reporter, last year during the election cycle, I saw people posting stories on Facebook. You know, I have people on both sides of the aisle, right. uh, you know, views. Um, and I was – there were a lot of things that I just didn't click on or I disregarded because it, it, it just didn't seem legit. Right. And I, I sort of took it for granted, I guess, when I looked at something and thought, that doesn't – you know, what, what is that source? Right. I've never heard of that. You know, it's not something well-known. And I think a lot of people just didn't. And if, the, if it said what they wanted to hear on either side of the aisle, then they embraced it. Right. And I, I, I think – that that's something that is, uh, you know, has been part of the discussion since the election. But uh, that's something that I don't. You have to have really sophisticated. I can't tell you how many times I would get emails from aunts or friends back home. They say, "Is is this right?" <laughs> and I'd have to look back and say, mm, "No, it's all, see, at least it's, all it's all made up." But they yeah, I mean, right? Someone. Exactly. Well, there are all kinds and, of outlets. You've got Snopes. You've got Politifact. There's a whole new. Uh, area where people are coming into because the veracity of what was said, you know, Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, God bless him, left us two things. He left his seat and he gave us Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton. He also gave us a quote that we have to remember. You can have your own... Um, you can, you're entitled to your own you're opinions. You're entitled to your opinions, but not your own facts. One last thing. I served for a number of years as the senior producer for This Week with George Stephanopoulos on ABC News. It's a very small but competitive space where Tim Russert reigned supreme for very long. But ultimately, when you take a look at the numbers on a weekly basis, in the demo, uh, you have roughly a million and a half people for all three or four of the major Sunday morning newscasts with an aggregate viewership somewhere around 2.3 million. The point I made earlier about the Philip DeFranco show and others that end up getting 5 million views in a day, I'm here to tell you, as journalists and former journalists, we know our trade, but we are not consumers the way that the business folks on the business side of this business consider consumers and where this is going. There's a real disconnect. Even as we talk about this now, I'm trying to point out that... uh, it's happening. The future is suddenly upon us. And, Kate, uh, talking a little bit about Roll Call CQ, where do you see changes in that organization? How are they kind of adapting to this new marketplace, or are they going to kind of keep on keeping on? Well, I think you always want to kind of stick with your core, you know, putting facts and news out. Um, But we do more video, uh, more podcasts, um, and things like that. So I I think there's obviously a realization that, you know, people want to consume news in, in different formats so yeah and just to be clear we at the fury theory we're not fake news 
We're, we're also really not a news show either. <laughs> we're also Let's not be really clear about that. Even though Kate Ackley, who is an esteemed journalist, is sitting with us for a great it's conversation. It's neither fake nor news. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that clarification. We're, we're true facts. No, no, no. We're fear theories. Anyway, um, theory three: hostile takeover. Earlier this week marked the one-year anniversary of President Trump's auspicious inauguration. It's been a bumpy ride, especially for the Washington elites who make up the upper crust of this city. Here's my theory. The president has presided over a hostile taker, takeover of Washington by New Yorkers. The president brings a certain Big Apple brashness that the much more genteel establishment in the city, city still can't get used to. Uh, Kate, you've been in this town for a while. How has Donald Trump changed Washington, if at all? Well, I think that the Trump administration, just, there's this backdrop of uncertainty um, about, you know, how, how, how is it going to handle certain policies? What is he going to tweet? What, you know, we all know that, and we're all operating under that sort of reality. Um, but I, I think while, yes, there have been um, people that, you know, he's appointed, you know, it's a very wealthy cabinet, and there have been a lot of stories about that. Um, you know, there are a lot of insiders who have – you know, been moved into appointments in the White House. Uh, former lobbyists have been welcomed back uh, as they, you know, they were not in the uh, Obama years, but they, they had been previously. Um, so you have them in, you know, the Energy Department, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, you have, you know, a lot of people from industry and including from, you know, lawyers and lobbyists. So I, I think while it's true that, you know, there is a sort of new um, new cast of characters, um, you know, I think of like uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and he has sort of his Hollywood resume. You know, you have a lot of interesting um, a lot of interesting characters in the Trump administration. Uh, but there are still a lot of um, I'm sure people that, you know, that are getting jobs in there. Or, yep. you know, I mean, it's it's maybe not to the level that it has been in some administrations, um, but I don't think it's a completely, uh, you know, completely like revolutionized group of people. Do, do you? Well, this is what I this is what I was kind of getting at. It's it's fascinating that the number one place to hang out in Washington now is the Trump Hotel, right? Okay. And that's where every and so that's that's where everyone wants to hang out to kind of hang you know find out if the Trump people are, are there drinking. Um, you know, it's interesting because I, to your point, there's a sense that. It hasn't been a complete hostile takeover yet because they have, he hasn't been successful. Kind of almost a rejection of the Trump, the Trumpkins. Uh, you know, Barack Obama, when he came in as president, he, had, he did have a, a sense of cool in the city. He, he brought – this is a cool city all of a sudden. You know, it was a um, – you had a lot of Hollywood people always coming in, and they loved President Obama. You know, with the, with the, uh, the Bush administration, you had a bunch of Texans coming in. Um, and, you know, when you had uh, – Bill Clinton came in, you had all these people from Arkansas and right. the Arkansas Mafia. Uh, Trump has this, 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 this group of brash New Yorkers that haven't quite decided whether they like the city or not. My sense is a lot of them come here and then go back to New York, um, that they haven't really tried to infiltrate the city, unlike um, the, the Chicago people or the Texans or the Arkansans. Um, and how where they all kind of hang out, it seems to me, is at the Trump Hotel, and um, that's kind of what I was getting at. This 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 this, this hostile takeover, they they haven't kind of gone beyond 
It's not like they're going to like Rose's Luxury or or uh, kind of hot new restaurants. They're just kind of hanging out at the Trump Hotel, um, so, which I think is fascinating. I, I, I mean, I just – I don't know if they're um, – I, mean, I think Ivanka Trump moved her family here. Right. So you obviously have – you know, and Melania Trump eventually moved here. Um, so have you seen like lots of Ivanka Trump sightings though in like different restaurants? Uh, no. I haven't either. <laughs> But I, I, but you know, hang out. Doesn't though. mean that she is. But it hasn't looked like. like I haven't uh, seen her in my neighborhood, but. I know where, 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 where you live in Brooklyn, <laughs> right? Brooklyn. Yeah, so. I live in the hill. I haven't seen a Ravanka in on the hill at all. Um, I, I do think some of them do commute. Um, I think you're right. Some of the officials uh, do commute, but, um, but I, I don't know. I mean, do you get the sense that it's uh, totally transformed or <clears throat> not? I feel, totally I feel like it's, it's a little cultural. Um, I like the fact that you mentioned Steve Mnuchin, who is almost a personal hero to me right now. Any man who could bring me Batman versus Superman, which was a greatly underrated movie, which I really enjoyed, and tax cuts. I mean, who does that, man? Nobody. God, Steve, you're the man. Um, but seriously, it's a bit of the culture. And This morning we woke up to some reporting here in Washington uh, trying to shine some light on what the president's thought process and actions were uh, concerning the special counsel, Robert Mueller. And the news was that he had ordered that Mueller be fired, but then, thanks to Don McGahn and some back and forth there, that didn't come to fruition. But I have it on good authority that President Trump likes to fire people on a regular basis, and a lot of them don't go away, <laughs> um, mostly because... We saw a television show where his entire raison d'etre was to say, you're fired. <laughs> and there is something about that brashness um, that, uh, that's permeating the White House. And I think at the beginning, in the first year, to be quite honest, um, this was the kind of thing that really hobbled their ability to speak in a common language with folks up on the Hill, to begin that dialogue and build trust and I think as we go into next week, as we see the president give his second State of the Union address, um, in, in a backdrop of between shutdowns and all the things that we've been talking about, he is beginning to assimilate a little bit and understand where are the boundaries and how could I do myself a favor by not running into them all the time. It, it's a takeover, but he's being affected by Washington. He's starting to learn the lessons a little bit. I, I think. think he is. I mean, I would say that I think that my, my point is that he is trying a hostile takeover of the New York attitude towards the Washington genteel, uh, gentility, uh, which, you know, Washington has been this, you know, t- town that has certain political norms that have always been, everyone, everyone has kind of tried to follow those norms where you don't say certain things, you don't, you know, you don't do certain things. Uh, but the president breaks all those norms uh, all the time. But he hasn't – I don't think this town has um, necessarily accepted Donald Trump as president yet. And I don't think that Donald Trump has necessarily tried to get Washington to accept him as president. And I think that there's that push and pull. Whereas with other presidents, there was definitely – you know, with George Bush, like I go back, the Texans came in. But there's also the sense that Bush – knew Washington because his dad was president. He had that DNA. He had that DNA. And Bill Clinton, even Bill Clinton, he was an Arkansan, but he went to Georgetown. He kind of knew Washington, mm-hmm. whereas Trump is just someone who is so rejecting Washington and, re- and Washington's rejecting him. 
and he's trying this hostile takeover. It's not it's not a, an effort to um, I don't I don't know how this ends. I don't know if it ends with uh, you know Washington bending to his will or 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 what happened with Richard. How does Nixon? it end, Kate? How does it end, Kate? Yeah, I think that's that's that uncertainty that we were talking about. There is going I think to continue to be a level of uncertainty that just sort of is the backdrop of everything, and especially this is an election year, so you've got everybody, um, you know, on the Hill that's up for re-election really thinking about, you know, everything through that prism. Um, so I think it's, you know, just just fuels the, uh, the uncertainty. I remember when I came to Washington um, in 1989, I always had this sense that I would go back home uh, after about six months, and 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 then it took me a while uh, to really get acclimated and accept the fact that I was going to stay in Washington for the long time, for the long term, and it took me about five years. I think for this president, it's taken him some time to really understand that he's going to be here for a while, and I, I think you're right. I think there's still a lot of people who aren't sure that he is going to be here for a while, and there's that sense of uncertainty. Anyway. Um, so we usually have, and I don't mean to spring this on you. But we're going to spring this on you. We're going to spring this on you. We have uh, a segment which we call the lightning round. And what we ask our, our folks to, our guests to do is give us a prediction. What would you buy or sell? It could be a person, place, or thing. Uh, I'm going to start with Adam Belmar so you have a chance to think about it. Adam, uh, what are you buying or selling today? Well, I am buying you know what I wish I wish I wish I could say what I was buying I in fact I have to just flip it and say I'm selling I I am I am selling all of the interest and determination that some people in Washington have for Rexit I know that uh we, we heard a lot about what was going to happen to our Secretary of State and how it was going to be an orchestrated departure. There are so many things that are in motion right now that uh, require a strong hand at state. We may yet see it, but uh, I am selling all the negativity uh, around Brexit. So you're buying Rex Tillerson. I am buying Rex Tillerson That's in the <laughs> short-term buy on Rexy. All right. Kate, do you have a buy or sell? Does, do I need to have a buy and a sell? You can, have, you, you, you can, can do either way. You can do either way. You can either rent. One. You can buy. You, you can lease to own. Well, I, <laughs> um, I guess uh, one of the things that I've been looking at is this uh, discussion about a return to earmarks. Mm-hmm. Are we going to have earmarks again? Mm. And would that be the sort of salve of all that you know keep us from shutting down the government? Um, but I, I am going to say that uh, that that that's not going to happen this year. Um, so I guess I will sell that. I'm selling that. You're selling earmarks. I'm selling them. The, the, um, the earmark boom is over. In that, in, well, I mean, it's been over for a while. I, I, I mean, they may come back. The mini boom. They may come back and someday, and we're going to talk about it more this year. Um, but I do not see sort of a reinstatement of earmarks um, this year, this election year. Right. I, I, I tend to agree with you. You know, I, I, I and I'm a big fan of earmarks. I think that they need to come back to restore the credibility of the Congress and this ability to control spending. And I'm fascinated that the president, you know, came out in favor. I think the president is actually trying to get Congress to 
resume some of his responsibilities, and Congress is kind of reluctant to do that. Um, but I think you're right. I'm going to sell uh, immigration reform. I don't think it's going to happen. I think that uh, I've, I've always been a, a proponent of immigration reform. Uh, I think it's uh, I think that the hard right and the hard left uh, at the end of the day don't want to get a deal. I think if I'm very sad about that, I think the Dreamers should get citizenship. But I'm going to sell immigration reform. I think that it's just not going to happen, and I, f- I feel bad for the country. So that's where I am. Um, any thoughts on uh, immigration? You think it's going to happen? Boy, uh, you know, I don't. They sure don't pay me for my predictions. <laughs> <laughs> well, well said, Kate. Except for on your marks. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Kate Ackley, for Absolutely. joining us thank today. You, Kate. And thank you, all our loyal listeners, including Topher Cushman. I mentioned you once again. I'm sorry I couldn't make the event last night, but I'm sure it'll be fun uh, in March. Um, and thank you once again for joining the Fury Theory Podcast, brought to you by EFB Advocacy. EFB means excellent for business. Yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs>